0: All right, Mark chapter 14, let's begin in verse 1. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. I guess that's how you say it. Then he, uh, she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone, why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish you may do them good, but me you do not not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city And a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. After that, I have been raised. I will, oh, excuse me. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Galilee. And Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Let's pray together. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you have provided it. You've revealed it to us. We're grateful that it will outlive the heavens and the earth. Lord, we want our hearts to be pliable and and able for you to fashion, to make us more the disciples that you've called us to be. Lord, where else in this world do we have to turn where we can be sure of, of how truth the information is? No other place but your word. So, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. We pray, Lord, that even things that we don't expect you might tell us, Lord, that we would be open to hearing whatever you have to speak to us about. Encourage your people, strengthen us, comfort us, convict us. Lord, it will help us to be more like Jesus through these verses. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus is right at the edge of being betrayed, being mistreated horribly, and to go through so much for us is just mind-blowing. That's why we take communion and receive communion. He knows that we can forget. We can forget why, how all of this is possible, that we get to enjoy this abundant life. And so he's getting ready to be betrayed, um, and he has been trying to reach people right at the end, even up to the end, even those that are against him, He's been trying to to speak truth to them. He has been speaking truth to them, desiring for them to receive and apprehend that truth appropriately, worthy of the the height and the breadth and the depth of what it represented uh, in their own hearts. And so he's been in the temple courts there. He's been confronting the Pharisees. They were asking him questions. They were trying to trap him. Then he asked them questions they couldn't answer. And so forth. Then he he saw this widow give everything that she had. That blessed his heart. And then last week, as we saw, we saw this great Olivet discourse where on the Mount of Olives he communicated uh, all the truth that we needed to hear related to the end times and what's going to happen at the end of the world. Every time that you do a study on the end times, uh, people are interested because they want to know what's coming. No one likes to go uh, on a trip and be blind and not know where you're going and not knowing what the destination is, not knowing what's ahead. We would love to have our lives mapped out to the nth degree, having him tell us exactly what we're going to go through because we want to walk by sight. We don't want to walk by faith. We don't want to trust him. Our flesh hates that. And even though we continue to grow, we continue to mature, and he still proves himself faithful over and over again, we still would prefer, given a choice, to be able to know what's coming ahead of time. And the disciples were no different. So as we saw, they came to him and said, what will be the sign of your coming? Because he br- brings up the whole fact, as we saw, about the, the temple being torn down. And that not one stone was going to be left on another because he responded to them talk about how impressed they were related to the the manner of stone, related to the the magnitude of the buildings and everything. And he responded and basically told them, why would you be so impressed with something that's not going to last? This is not going to last. This is God is going to do something. Not one stone is going to be left on another. And that's what happened in AD 70, as we looked at, where in AD 70, under the, the general Roman general Titus, they came and destroyed that city. They threw all the, the, they destroyed the temple and all of those things. And they still, all the way from that time until now, don't have a temple. And they, they don't have a temple because there's going to be a very specific third temple that's going to be built that the Antichrist is going to enter to proclaim himself to be God and going to defile it. And then he's going to turn on the Jews and persecute the Jews in the Great Tribulation. So he began that whole passage, Jesus did, with the warning and the exhortation to us and to disciples from all through the church age to not be deceived. The very first thing he said, make sure no one deceives you regarding the end time. So it's very important that we look to his word as the standard by which we form and formulate all of our thoughts and ideas and opinions about what's coming. It really only matters what he says is going to, what's coming. You know, we hear about this great revival that's coming, and God may have a great revival that's coming uh, to our nation and to the world. That may happen, but we're not guaranteed anything like that at all. In fact, in Scripture, it says that the closer we get to the end, the more apostasy is going to happen, the more falling away is going to happen. So that we know for sure is going to happen, and I think we're starting to see that more and more. Uh, things are starting to decline in terms of people's faiths and how much they're involved and so forth. And that, that just shows exactly what, what God had predicted. Now, in other parts of the world, it's on fire. South America, um, that whole area there is just, there's tremendous growth in the, the church. In China, multiplying disciples oh, just by factors of who knows how many, just people growing. Because any time that there's persecution, the church does well. It's only times of prosperity, and it's true for uh, the history of God's people. Israel, every time there's been a time of prosperity, that's when they are the most vulnerable. Because when you're not going through prosperous times, you're more dependent upon God. You're more dependent upon Him. But when you're going through great prosperity and all those things, sometimes we leave our dependence upon the Lord and we forget, we get distracted with things of this world that's passing away and so forth, and we, we start um, letting our faith cool down. And God wants us to be red hot for him in terms of our faith. So now as we get to this passage that starts, the wheels are starting to turn, the events are starting to unfold where his arrest is coming, and he's just closing out the last, the last 24 hours, really, of, of his public ministry and of his earthly life And all of that before he raises himself from the dead. And so we see that in Mark. It's a little bit abbreviated, just just like how the rest of Mark is. And and so, but we're going to see some very important principles. So let's begin in verse one. We're told this after two days it was the Passover and feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar of the people. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were two feasts put together that basically lasted eight days. There was one day for the Passover, and it was a Sabbath day, and then the next eight, seven days after that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And sometimes they used those terms interchangeably to refer to one or the other. So it, it basically they started, it had to happen on a certain day. The Passover would start on the 14th day of uh, Nissan. It's not the car. Uh, it's spelled differently. It's the, basically the month of March, April. And that was the beginning of their Jewish calendar. So on the 14th, they had very specific instructions in the law. They had to uh, keep the fast Passover on that, that day. And then the 15th through the 21st, I believe it is. Yeah, the 21st. That following week would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I just like it that God is in the feasts. Amen? You know, he just loves celebrations. They have to be godly celebrations, of course. Uh, but there, he has—he loves celebrations. I mean, talk about having—they had all these feasts, these three major uh, feasts um, that they had, that were mandatory that they had to celebrate. But God was all in, all about rest and celebration and all those things. And and, and we talk about, you know, when we get to heaven, those of us that know Him. We get to heaven. There's going to we're going to experience at some point the marriage supper of the lamb. That's another feast, beautiful. He's going to be the the, the guest of honor. Of course, we're going to enjoy him. So this Passover was celebrating uh, the departure of the Israelites from Egypt. They'd been enslaved. They'd been enslaved for hundreds of years, and so God laid out this whole plan for uh, they. He would pass over as after the end of all the plagues that he'd done already, and. It was this last one where he said basically put, take some blood and put it over the top of your doorpost and on the sides, which incidentally makes a form of a cross, and the angel of death would pass over. That's why it's called Passover. Pass over and not slay the firstborn child there. And so that, that was something that was, was celebrated because God spared them because the Egyptians suffered that. The firstborn all died throughout the whole, including pharaohs, all over the land. So they were celebrating that. But then also they had this feast of unleavened bread, which represented the absence of the leaven of sin. Leaven is yeast. And, as, and yeast has always been pictured as a type of sin, or a picture of sin. It spreads. It degrades. It makes something break down. It doesn't it? Does, it's the opposite of a preservative, and and all of that. And so they were told to um, to get rid of all the yeast in their in their home and all of that uh, for that to celebrate this and all of that. And then, but it was it was emblematic of kind of the life that they were supposed to live. They were coming out of Egypt, and they were set aside now, not in the context of having to deal with uh, that. Uh, culture and all of that, and they were out in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and they were supposed to be set aside and holy and different than the rest of this world. And so we, sometimes we talk about holiness in the context of the New Testament because it really talks a lot about holiness in the New Testament. But it was all through the history of God's people that holiness was very, very important. God wants us to be like himself. He's holy. He's different. He wants us to be like Him. And it's beautiful. The the definition of holiness, because we can get there a lot of crazy definitions. The definition and the, the quintessential example of holiness is the Lord Jesus. That's why it's been so amazing to go through the Scriptures and go through the Gospels together and just see His life. Because everything that He says, everything that He does, how He acts, how He treats people, how He anticipates needs, how He has compassion, how He thinks of everything how all these examples of him and what he says and what he does is just how you define holiness. It's just who he is. And so he wants us to be like himself, much like a parent wants their children to be like them in their good attributes. You know, with God, there are no bad attributes. So he can completely say, be exactly like me. But we can't say that because we're growing in holiness, all of us. And so we want him to Be like us in the sense of our example of the good things that are in our lives. And so this culture seems to be influencing, in some ways, the church more and more with lowering that standard. And we have to have God's word as the standard always for everything in life and not anyone else, the world or other people in our lives or, or anything like that. So that's important for us to see. They were celebrating that feast, celebrating. The, the, the absence of the leaven of sin in their lives and households, and God blessed them as, as a result. So now we see these leaders, they're starting to plan the capture and, and basically to put him to death, the Lord Jesus, to kill him. And this is directly fulfilling Jesus' prophetic parable that we looked at a few weeks ago, that he spoke against these religious leaders. The vineyard about which he spoke is Israel the vine dressers about whom he spoke are these leaders. The Old Testament prophets were the servants that God sent. Remember in the parable that the vineyard owner sent his servants to come get some of the fruit and they were killed. And then finally the Lord Jesus said in this parable against them that eventually the vineyard owner sent his son because he thought, oh, they're never going to kill my son to get some of that fruit that he was—he had due. Come, had, uh, it was, you know, supposed to come to his way, but they killed even the son. And he was—it was prophetic in saying, "That's what you're going to do. You're plotting right now to kill the son." And so God expected a return on his investment and, and this vineyard that he had, this nation of Israel, that when the Messiah came, that these leaders would point people to the Messiah, but instead they did the opposite. And, and God expected a return on his investment related to his vineyard, uh, the nation of Israel. So he, he has already started speaking about this up to this point. And now, because they're actually plotting and actively planning these things, they are actually in real time fulfilling this parable that he spoke against them. And God was trying to warn them. He was giving them a way out. Jesus loved those religious leaders. He wanted to reach them. He wanted them to repent. Some did. Some did. We're told in the book of Acts that a large number of priests and and Pharisees came to know him after the cross. And so he was trying to reach them. You can imagine them thinking back. He was trying to reach me. He was still, even before we crucified him, he was trying to reach me. What would that do to your heart? as a brand new Christian, as a Pharisee, or as a priest, that you rejected all these things about him before. And now you realize it was all true. The scales have been lifted from your eyes. And you realize and think back the very specific times that the Lord Jesus was trying to reach you, even though he knew what you were trying to do to him. You just know that that had such an impact on their, their lives. Now, in verse 2, we're told they wanted to employ trickery but couldn't do it publicly during the feast because it, there would be the risk of an uproar. At this time, there are probably 2 to 3 million Jews in Jerusalem, packed. You can't fit any more Jews in Jerusalem almost at this time. They'd come from all over the world. You know, they would come long journeys to be able to come to these feasts. They had to. There, there's one of the three feasts that every male 13 and over was required to be a part of every single year. So they came to this this feast and so forth. Well, that included a lot of Galileans that he had a lot of followers in Galilee, but he had a lot of followers everywhere. We just saw recently in the in this book where it said the common people heard him gladly. The common people weren't stumbled by him at all. They didn't have any power that was that was at risk if people started following Jesus like the religious leaders did. And he had a lot of followers, and they knew that he was popular. And if they started doing those things publicly, then there was going to be trouble. And they knew that their, their wealth and their power was directly connected to the people. So they were man-pleasers, and they didn't want to, to risk that. So they had to find a way to do it that was mo- more covert and hidden. And that's why they had this plan to be able to get Jesus at night when there wasn't people around and, and that way they could do it where no one was around and, and could potentially have a problem with it. And so that's why they needed um, Judas. Now in verses 3 through 9, we're going to look now at a very beautiful scene. It's a very beautiful scene of worship. And we looked at it when we went through Matthew, but there's some additional things here that we can get from other places as well, like in the book of John, that kind of let us see what's going on with this uh, beautiful scene of worship. Look at me at verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now, this, who is this woman? This woman, we're told in other places, Matthew tells us that this was Mary, the brother of Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. So that's who this is here. He doesn't mention it in this account. And then we're told that she had this alabas- alabaster flask. Hard for me to say. And th- what this was was a long necked bottle that was made of very special marble. And it was made of a type of marble that helped preserve very valuable perfumes and very valuable oils. See, these things were very unique to certain geographical areas. And that's a lot of times what made them. Very expensive. In the book of Acts, when we get there, we're going to see Lydia, who dealt with the the whole um, art of making purple dye, where they would crush a certain type of bug, and it would it would it would make that you know purple dye out of it, and they would dye certain clothing in that. It was very very valuable. You couldn't get purple anywhere else, and so that was very valuable. Just like spices were from certain parts of the world that you couldn't get anywhere else yet, and so that was very expensive. So this, this was a, a very specific flask to hold costly oil, and we're, and we're told that it was um, uh, this spikenard. And that, what, what that is, literally that word means pure nard. <laughs> okay, so what is pure nard? Pure nard is an oil that's derived from the nard plant. Imagine that. You know, a nard plant um, has nard oil coming out of it. It was native to India, so you had to get it somehow from India. They weren't growing nard plants in Israel. Now you're going to go out and Google nard plants, and you're, maybe you're going to find one that you can have in your own garden or whatever. Then you can make some of this oil yourself. I don't know, but uh, it, it was very valuable. You could only get it in India at this, at this time, and we're told later in a few verses that they could probably get more than 300 denarii if they sold it. Now, a denarii was one day's wage for a working man. So we're talking about a year's wages. So think about what you make in a year, and that's how much it would cost to buy this oil that she's been saving up. And and because obviously this would take a long time to add to it right? You're probably not going to save up for a whole year and buy it in one. Maybe you would, but maybe she's added to it over time. We're not told there, but we're told that she broke the flask and this was probably necessary for how she was going to pour it because it probably had a spout that was very, you know, it didn't let a lot out at a time because you don't want to waste it. And so she had to break the neck of it and that where it could just pour because that was her heart. That's the connection to her heart here. She wants to pour her worship out. And sometimes we sing, we pour out our hearts to you and all of that. That's a perfect picture. She wanted to pour, she wanted to sprinkle worship on him. She wanted to pour worship on him. There was an overflow of her heart, so much so that she just, this oil represented her heart. She wanted to pour it on on his head. And we're told in other gospels that she also put it on his feet and, and wiped it up with her hair. You know, so there, it would, this is prepare, preparing for his burial. That's what he's going to tell us in a moment. But I like this expression of worship. Um, it says in verse 4 but there were some who were indignant. It's a completely different picture here. Um, the opposite of worship is indignation, you know, possibly. I don't know. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? for it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And don't we don't want to miss this last part of verse 5. And they criticized her sharply. Now the apostle John tells us that Judas was the instigator here. And Matthew tells us the rest of the disciples followed his lead. We can affect other believers with our with our thoughts, with, with things that come out of our mouth, our influence, the things that we say that we're not really prayerful about or we're careless with. You know, we're told in Scripture that the, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And we can influence people. And Judas influenced these disciples here. And we're told that it, it made them very upset with Mary. And notice, like I said, criticized her sharply. I can just picture it now. What are you doing, Mary? That is so foolish. I can't believe you wasted that. Do you realize how much, how many poor people could have been helped with this? Where is your head? You're not even thinking. I mean, we have no idea. I mean, they can get in the flesh just like we can, um, really easily. We can be really good at criticizing people sharply, and so they concluded that it could have been sold and the money given to the poor and all of that. Now, John tells us that Judas was taking from the money box, so that's where all of this starts. It, He wasn't concerned about the poor. Judas was not uh, staying up at night wondering how more poor people can be helped. He was trying to get more money for himself because he knows that that would have been like a year's worth of money there and he could have taken some of that. And, And what's interesting is that the Lord Jesus put him in charge of that, knowing who he was, knowing who he was. The Lord Jesus knew that the ministry was not dependent upon, you know, anybody, one, any one person. He, he could supply, and he did supply many times, straight, just directly, without having to buy anything uh, at all. And obviously, this is, he's not advocating for mismanaging funds or anything like that. But, I mean, it's not like Jesus didn't know, right? And so, um, you know, when you're telling fish to, to have coins in them, you know, like he told Peter to go do that, and you're multiplying loaves and fishes and you've done it twice, you, you, you know you're not limited by a money box. So anyway, the motivation for, for uh, Judas was directly connected to serving himself, and that's revealed later in the passage as well. Now let's look at Jesus' response in, in verses um, 6 through 9. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. The one person who wasn't asked what they thought or their opinion about the oil was the one whom it was intended to bless. And we would have been doing the same thing. I bet you we would have been saying the same thing, chiming in, and all of that. We would have forgot to, and just before we said anything, find out what Jesus' response would be. But before she even gets finished, before they can even hear how that blessed Jesus. And remember, you have to put yourselves in his, as best as we can, in our limited um, capacity, to think about what that meant to him. In the context of all the rejection, that he's been facing and all of that, we can underestimate the power of when he gets blessed and, and, and the power of it in his own heart. I mean, how it affects his heart. He has a huge heart, much greater than our hearts. And he's there and he, and he sees this widow give everything. He sees all these acts of faith and, and now this woman is worshiping with something that cost her a lot. That's the key to all of this. See, to her, giving worship to him in this way if it were just you know, a small amount, then for her, that wasn't good enough. This is for her. It's not anyone else defining the significance of this. It could have blessed the Lord just as much if it was a small amount. The point was, for her heart, it had to be all of that. All of everything that was in that, because it represented her heart. She wanted to pour forth everything that was in her heart to the Lord. And so that, they didn't pay attention to how it would bless the Lord, And he says, she has done a good work for me. You guys are thinking the value of the money, but you're not thinking about what it's done to me. She's done it for me. And and he says, you have the poor always, but me, you do not have always. She was aware of that. And she was aware um, of, I believe, some people say that she had no idea what was coming related to the burial, and he's just saying she's done this, not knowing really what she's done, but this is what she's done. She's prepared uh, me for my burial, my body, for my burial but I, I don't believe that personally it's my opinion I believe when we're told that Mary is a student that she's she's someone that had the priority in her heart to sit at Jesus feet when other things could have been done like her sister was was being engaged in and there's nothing wrong with Martha or whatever but at that point when he talks to them he says she's chosen the better thing Mary was a student God loves students of of him and she sat at his feet and she learned and she listened and he, she was very close to Jesus they though that family he was very close to and said a lot of things and and I I don't I firmly believe that she knew f- from what he had said and even possibly from the Old Testament because it's all in the Old Testament too that the Messiah was going to be cut off that Messiah was going to suffer knowing Isaiah 53 knowing all these things knowing that he's going to die that she in her heart knew that and was maybe knew that she, because it says, notice it says, she has come beforehand. She has done what she could. What does that mean? She has done what she could in verse 8. She couldn't do the, she she knows she's not going to be allowed to prepare the body after. That's going to be other people that have more power and influence. But she can do this. She can do it beforehand in faith. Very possible that she was thinking that. I can't be a part of Preparing his body after he dies. But what I can do is prepare his body with this before he dies, in faith, knowing that he was going to, to die. It's a beautiful picture of worship. The best worship is the worship that's not prompted by anybody else, where it's just in your heart, where you find a way to worship that maybe is not what you're not used to, not necessarily against anything that you have experienced before but just you you as you think about him and how amazing he is you sense a way that you could touch his heart in a way that is maybe unconventional or something that you haven't seen or experienced before because there wasn't a template for Mary. Mary wasn't going off of, you know, how to worship God for dummies. You know, she wasn't going off of some template or some instruction or looking at someone else that's done something. This is all original. This is original worship here. Even his disciples were stumbled and couldn't understand it, and she had this original heart, original plan to express her heart in a way that she'd never seen before, probably. No one had probably done that before, and that's good for us to see because we can criticize sharply, can't we? When people find ways to worship and they're, they're submitting to God in a way that's just different, not better or worse, just different than us. Their lives, because worship's supposed to be about our whole life, and their lives look different in terms of how God is worshipped in their life or through their life. And it's really easy to say, well, you know, it's not what I'm used to. It's not what I'm comfortable with, and criticize them, because maybe they're sacrificing something that seems foolish to us. Maybe they're, maybe there's people that God's calling to leave this country and go to another country to be a missionary. And to do that, they're going to have to sell everything, and it's going to look entirely foolish and and irresponsible to everybody else, especially people maybe in their family, and they're going to criticize them, but that's their alabaster flask. That's the way that they're going to worship God. They're going to pour out their life completely, and it's going to look like this, different than what God's called us to or how he's called us to express worship, we have to be very careful about criticizing that. It's also a good encouragement for us to recognize that we should be open to other ways to worship different than what we're used to, or what we're accustomed to. Because as we spend time with God, and as we commune with him, as we see him work in our lives, he may work in a way to where in our hearts, from where we're coming from, the only reasonable way that we can worship him as we see our, you know, through our own understanding is to sacrifice this certain thing or this way of living or whatever it is in a way that maybe other people don't understand. Sometimes we can think that people that have chosen to not enjoy certain liberties that Christians are, generally speaking, allowed to engage in, we can criticize them or think that they're weaker Or we can think that they're, uh, you know, that it's unnecessary or that it's legalistic. Some freedom that they're giving up. And we have to be careful about that. Because maybe whatever it is they're giving up that we have the freedom to do, maybe that is the way that they need to worship God in a very specific way. And as long as they're not putting on everybody else, like legalists truly try to do, (laughs) uh, we need to be respectful of that. People have different walks in life. We have different walks. There's different ways to worship. There's different ways to express that heart to him. And especially in the area where we feel like they've gone overboard with what they've sacrificed to do that. And the inconvenience of their life and all those things. We have to respect that because he sees it. That's the thing that the disciples missed that it blessed his heart, that he saw the intention of her heart. She didn't say, I am doing this to prepare your body for burial, holding up a sign, hey, guys, this is why I'm doing this so you understand. No, she just started doing it. She didn't care. So we're not always going to have the explanation from someone related to why they're worshiping the way that they're worshiping or doing something as, a, as an expression of worship. We're not going to have all that. And they don't owe us that. What we owe them is to be flexible with that and go, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord that you are willing to worship Him in that way. And, and I'm not going to criticize that. That's a beautiful picture. That we wouldn't want everybody's worship to be identical, would we? It'd be boring. It would be. It would be. We wouldn't be able to ex- experience the beauty of that diversity because we're all different. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful um, reminder for us. Verse ten. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Wow. No betrayal is convenient for the person being betrayed. And he's wanting to find an easy way. It'd be bad enough if he wanted to be inconvenienced to betray, but now he wants to even to be, he wants to betray in a convenient way. And I want to just mention related to Judas here. We haven't really focused on Judas a lot before. But Judas, there was something going on in his heart that was, I believe, related to his view of Jesus. He didn't have that view of Jesus like he should have, obviously. Because you would never, even 30 pieces of silver, as valuable as that was, you wouldn't ever take anything to betray the Lord. But what it was about Jesus that bothered Judas or didn't meet his expectations or whatever it is. We don't know what was going on in his heart, but there was something that didn't click with Judas related to Jesus there. And he was with him for all that time. He saw everything. He was sent out and saw all of the the demons cast out and saw the miracles and the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, calming the storm, walking on the sea, casting out demons, healing lepers, raising from the dead. He saw all of that with his eyes. And it cracks me up when people say, well, if God were right here in front of me and he did a miracle, if Jesus did a miracle right in front of me, I would believe. (laughs) No, you wouldn't. There were people right in front of Jesus that didn't believe, that saw all of that, notwithstanding Judas Iscariot. He saw all of it. We have to not underestimate the power of our wicked hearts because we can have the most wicked hearts related to the Lord Jesus you know, humankind can, and 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 we don't have to see with our eyes. There are people that saw with their eyes that still rejected him, and it's 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 a tragedy. But but Judas, he whatever it was, there was something about the Lord Jesus that he didn't appreciate. Even in the face of seeing all those miracles, I don't know how you could. I mean, John says at the end of his gospel of all the things that were written that the, the Lord Jesus did. I suppose that not all of the libraries couldn't contain the books to hold all of it. I mean, this the gospels, even four of them, and as long I mean, verses as they are. It's just a small snapshot of what he said and what he did. But Judas saw all of it, you know, except the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, only the Peter, James, and John were allowed to do that, and there were certain things that they all didn't see. But this world is much like Judas, in that they they're seeing Jesus, but they're not seeing Jesus. They are recognizing that his teachings, when they're exposed to them, are like uh, you know amazing. How could you come up with with anything like? I mean, I have, one pastor told me one time, if you think that you could ever write scripture, because some people say, oh, this is inspired, you know, and just like the Bible, you know, and they'll write something that just people are supposed to be amazed at. And then you read it and go, I wouldn't blame that on God, <laughs> um, you know, or like the the, the 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 songwriters that say, God gave this to me. That well, ease up on the God gave you till we see it, you know, or or you know we hear it or whatever. I'm, I'm just kidding, but um, you know, it's it's there's just that thrown around a little bit too much. But I remember one leader said to me, just go out and write one parable. Go out just and write one proverb, one sentence that's a proverb. Go go out and do that and see how if it's anything anyone would want to read ever again. You know, it's such a good point. You know, but the, 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 the God's word and, and all of those things that this world is just, they see him, but they don't see him. They don't appreciate him. They don't look at him for who he really is. And they miss him. And even in our hearts, we can start to have expectations that we think he should fill or he should act in a certain way that we think he should act. And it's, we're, we're let down because he's not who we want him to be. And I think it's a good reminder for us, too, just the fact that He is God and we're not. That's a good, I saw a good bumper sticker that said that. There's two facts in life. There is a God, and number two, you're not Him. You know, and I think that's really good for us to think about because, you know, we just think sometimes that we know what's better. You ever give God advice? How did that go for you? You know, you need my counsel right here. You're kind of missing it. Things are kind of, the wheels are falling off the tracks, and you're, you need my you know, whatever. And it, it's, we have no wisdom in ourselves. So it's a good exhortation for us and and, um, just to understand how our hearts can be so wicked. Verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. Now, this would have been unusual because men in that culture at that time, and and including many parts today over there, the men aren't the ones that go get the water. It's the the women and children that get water. Men don't do that. So, this would be unusual for them to see that. Uh, Verse 14 Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 15. Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. Again, Jesus invites himself over places, and I kind of like that. You know, he did that with Zacchaeus. Today, I'm going to eat with you. So again, I'm just—if I ever invite myself over to your house, I'm just following Jesus' footsteps. Okay, you can't—you can't criticize. And, it, and I'm sure it'll—it's it, the other way around. You guys can just invite yourself over my house. Maybe I should be careful by saying that. But um, anyway, he says, "Make ready." And, and and this upper room, this another word for this word here that's upper room has to do with an inn. So it was used in Luke to communicate the inn when they were trying to find an inn there in Bethlehem. So it's most likely a place where travelers would come. It was Airbnb. What do they get? They didn't come up with that. You know, here are these this is a private home and they're opening up their house. That, that's way predating Airbnb with renting out a room of your house for like a hotel. They were doing it way back then. It's not the new under the sun. So this it would be already furnished. We're told that in the verses. Notice in verse 15, this large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. It was already set, set for them. It's perfect for the Last Supper. Verse 16. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? Because he said it was going to happen in the future. One of you will betray me. And so they know he knows the future. And, you know, it's funny to me. I'm wondering if Peter was one of the ones, because I don't think so in light of what he's going to say. Uh, but maybe he was. Maybe he just had just kind of um, dual personalities at the moment or whatever with that. But they say, is it I? And that's, I think that's a healthy response. Even if you think, I can't imagine doing that, but, hey, I know my own heart. I know that apart from God, where I would be and the, my decisions and all of that. So it definitely could be me. And they're asking, is it I? I think that's... That's a healthy response to what he said. We don't know our own hearts sometimes. It's healthy. Verse 20. He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. Now they had multiple dishes on the table there. And they would recline. That's how they ate. And they would have lots of sauces. And it's very common over there. And you, they would dip bread in sauces and all of that. So they had multiple sauces. So there wasn't just one one thing that they all were dipping in that's what we kind of think that there's going around this whole table and we're all sharing out of one dish they had multiple dishes there and and so um you know he he said um who dips with me in this dish the son of man indeed goes just as written of him but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would have been good for that man if he had never been born and i i think you know right at this time, I think, if you can look at the other Gospels and you can see that this is around the time when Jesus would left, because I don't think that he did the for, um, the last supper with Judas, um, but it says in verse 22, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And so this is, this is the Passover meal. So there were three cups and there was spices. There was bitter herbs. There was all these things. He is changing this now. Very, very significant. He is changing this Passover meal to communion. He is changing it. It's changing the whole significance of it, all of that. And it's now reflecting his body. The bread was reflecting his body, which was sinless. So unleavened bread was uh you know, appropriate, and then the cup represented his shed blood, and that's they all and it says in verse twenty four and he said to them, "This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many." So the Old Testament had the old covenant, and it was an earthly covenant related to that well there's a bunch of different covenants in the Old Testament, but the, one of the covenants had to do with the, coming into the land and all those things and and but there were other covenants that had to do with With this covenant, that actually the new covenant facilitated the fulfillment of those uh, covenants because it expanded to the whole world. You know, like when God told Abraham that your descendants will be like the sand of the seashore and all of that. All that's talking about all of us that know Christ, that we're children of Abraham because we have faith like Abraham did. Hebrews talks about that. And so, because of the new covenant, then that covenant could be fulfilled. But there is a new covenant. Hebrews refers to it as a better covenant because of Jesus. And because of he's in the, the priestly line of Melchizedek, not Aaron, um, that priesthood is forever, and, and that covenant is better, and all of that. There's a big movement of false teachers that are trying to get Christians to become Jews still. Even in our day, it was back then with the book of Galatians and all of that, but now they're still trying to get us to do all the feasts and do all, all that stuff, eat kosher and all these things. Don't fall for it for a second. We're in the new covenant. Everything that we has been given thanks, talking about food, it should be received with thanksgiving. Paul talks about that. So there's no ceremonial law anymore. Jesus is our Sabbath. And we obey the rest of the Ten Commandments because we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. That takes care of the other nine. We are not under the Old Covenant. We are not Jews. The Ten Commandments was not supremely written to us. It was written to the Old Testament, in the, those Jews in the Old Testament in the wilderness, and we obey those indirectly by obeying the law of Christ about loving um, God and loving our neighbor as self. So he instituted this new covenant, and then he says in verse 25, "Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God." And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This hymn was likely Psalm 118. They would sing these Hallel songs, Psalms uh, 113 through 118. So this is likely the last one, Psalm 118. It's very messianic. You can look it up later. And then it, we're told in verse 27, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the shepherd will be scattered. Who struck, struck um, who hit the shepherd? You know what the past tense of that. Uh, who struck the shepherd? God did. Jesus said, no one takes my life. From man's perspective, he was killed. And scripture records that. From God's perspective, He laid his life down. He said, no one takes my life. I lay it down, and if I lay it down, I can take it up again. God's the one that struck the shepherd because God wanted to save us, and the only way to save us was for him to have his son take the punishment that we deserve, the wrath that we we were due, and because of that sacrifice, we can have eternal life, and so God struck that shepherd, Jesus, and that was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, uh, and that's what, That's what uh, Mark is quoting here. Verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Matthew, we saw that, and he met them in in Galilee, all of that. He promised that, Um, so he, he followed through with that after he was raised from the dead. Verse 29, and Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be such a statement of self-dependence and he's trying to prove something to Jesus I will not I I I the 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 whole word that's the problem there is the word I <laughs> yet I will not be the faithfulness that we demonstrate in our Christian walk is a result of not trying harder not trusting in ourselves it's a, it's something that comes as a result of our walk with him Our job and our role as believers is to commune with Jesus himself. And as we do that, then he brings forth this beautiful fruit. And that beautiful fruit causes us to walk one day at a time, one moment at a time. So it's his faithfulness. It's it's all because of God. Peter needed to learn that. He had to be humbled. And Jesus addresses that in verse 30 when he said, "Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Notice that they all said it. it wasn't just Peter. We beat up on Peter a lot and he says some things that are worthy of a beat down. You know? But he influenced the other believers. Again, our influence on other believers is very, you have to be very careful and and he influences all of them, and they all said like yeah, me too, yeah, me too, yep. That's me. Yep, we won't we won't we have to die with you, but they all scattered except John. John didn't, John was there at the cross. So very important as we finish up here, Jesus wants us to be fully engaged in worship of him. And we can't let others' expectations or tradition, or any of these things get in the way of what our unique hearts need to express to Him. Whether it be, I mean, I could give you all kinds of examples, but it would be, again, things that I've seen or experienced, and that's not unique to you. It has to be unique to you. Now, when we're in corporate, we're singing, because again, worship is our whole life, not just our time of singing, but when we're singing, this is corporate worship. It's different than individual worship. We have to be very careful to not do things in a way to where we take attention off the Lord and onto us. Okay, we know that. But there still is a uniqueness to our worship, a uniqueness to what we sacrifice. And it's going to look different for everybody. Let's let's ask him how is it that he, how he made us and what we've experienced with him and all of those things and seek him and find out what's in our heart to do, just like Mary had in her heart to do. And let's boldly pour that out, so to speak, and just worship him freely. And let's not be critical of others and not, and, and not remember what it means to Jesus. Even though it makes no sense to us, it means something to him. It's all of our worship, our whole life, everything that we do and say and all of that, it's, it's art that's on the refrigerator. Like our kids. Those aren't Mona Lisas up on, <laughs> on our refrigerators, right? But because there are kids, they're a beautiful work of art. That's what someone else's worship that doesn't look like what we, how we would worship or how we would express our ministry or whatever it is. That is someone's art on a refrigerator to God. That's important for us to remember. I need to hear that. I can be a Pharisee like anybody else and be critical of every little thing. It's not like what I'm comfortable with. We have to be very careful. God has many different ways to receive worship, and it blesses his heart. Secondly, self-dependence. Though they all will deny you, I will never... Let's be careful about what we say and have the confidence in what we'll do or not do because it's by God's grace on any given day that we stand and we have to be dependent upon him and not in ourselves and completely rely upon him and then he will produce that fruit, that beautiful fruit that comes forth so that he gets the glory. Amen? Let's, Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, God, these verses we... We want to be worshipers of you in every way that you've set it up. But also, Lord, we want to worship you in the ways that we need to worship you individually that may not be how other people understand. And so we pray that you would lead us related to that. Help us to know our hearts and how our hearts want to express that. Help us to not be critical of others, Lord. Help us, Lord, to to appreciate other people's great sacrifice that touches your heart, even if we can't relate to it. And Lord, help us to be completely dependent upon you and not ourselves. I pray, Lord, that there'd be no self-dependence represented in this church, your church, and that we can be completely dependent upon you. We we thank you that we have an opportunity, Lord, individually and collectively, to bless your heart and that you see everything and it means so much to you. Help us, Lord, to express that in an increasing way as, as you lead us. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.